Good morning. Thanks for being with us. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, that full interview uh, with Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, will be on the West Block uh, on Global tomorrow. That will air right here on CKNW uh, as well. One of the other conversations, though, about uh, this entire uh, SNC-Lavalin affair, the scandal that continues, is what is the political future of both Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould now that they have been officially pushed out of the Liberal caucus? So, well, Tristan Hopper, who is a columnist with the National Post has written about this, and he joins us on the line now. Tristan, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, You've been speaking uh, to some high-up members of the Conservative Party, uh, to others as well, about this idea. Will they join another party? Is that even an option, something on the table? Uh, What have you found out? Uh, My answer was a resounding no. They will not be joining another party. Um, Well, they're probably, ideologically, they're probably a best fit with the NDP, but the NDP has a floor-crossing policy. They do not accept uh, floor crossers just as a matter of principle. Um, when it comes to the Conservatives, they do accept floor crossers. It was only eight months ago that they did accept uh, a member of the Liberal Party. But uh, this is sort of a different situation. This is not uh, Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould. They, they, they didn't leave the Liberal Party because of ideological differences. They were forcibly ejected on a matter of principle. So I, one of the uh, things I didn't consider going into this is that um, – you know, if, if you're just thinking from the purely cynical electoral standpoint, uh, they're actually more valuable to the conservatives um, as uh, free speech martyrs uh, rather than conservatives. Because if you turn them into conservatives, you just turn them into partisan actors, which is what the liberals have been trying to tell us about them this whole time. Right. And I guess we should clarify, too, uh, we, we talk, we're talking about both Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould because they were both ejected at the same time. But it's not as though they're a package deal. These are independent uh, people who can do uh, choose their own political future. But there is a lot of speculation or people trying to figure out and read the tea leaves as what might happen next. That's right. Uh, so, well, if, in, in terms and in terms of uh, whether they would actually want to be conservatives. Uh, so Jody Wilson-Raybould, probably absolutely not, because... Um, she has a long history of, of not getting along well with conservative governments when she was regional chief of the Assembly of First Nations. She was often locking horns uh, with the then governments of Stephen Harper. Basically, every policy they came up with, um, she was usually publicly denouncing it. So if there's anything we've learned about Jody Wilson-Raybould is that she prioritizes principle above career. So no matter how sweet the deal the Tories could offer her, um, she probably wouldn't take it. And what about the idea of running as an independent? Um, that's, that's a possibility, uh, because uh, we, we have to remember that these two women are basically the most popular politicians in Canada right now. Uh, so they actually, both their writings were previously conservative writings before they won them for the Liberals. Um, so I think uh, part, part of that's just due to the Liberal wave that happened in 2015, but I, I think a lot of it is due to their own personal popularity. So I think it's entirely feasible that uh, obviously if they did run as independents, the Liberals would be trying to run the strongest candidates against them. But um, I think it's feasible in both cases uh, that they would win. I mean, so they're not from safe liberal ridings, and particularly Jody Wilson-Raybould coming from Vancouver Granville. They don't have that sort of old-timey liberal partisan ties um, that you would find in, I don't know, a place like downtown Toronto. 
Um, so, yeah, I think it's entirely feasible if they ran as independents, they could remain uh, in the legisl- in the uh, House of Commons after the next election. And there is a history of that in B.C. Uh, as well. And uh, and you mentioned, so Jody Wilson-Raybould's riding, Vancouver Granville. Uh, it happens to be the riding that I live in as well. It's a huge riding. It covers many different neighborhoods and different demographics. Uh, so I- I'm curious as to how that's going to play out. But certainly there is the history in B.C. as well. Chuck Cadman was from B.C., a very popular independent. Uh, then replaced. Uh, he passed away. His wife uh, ran as well. Uh, so there is a history of voting in independence. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and particularly now, I mean, they're not just liberal dissidents, remember. I mean, they're both incredibly qualified uh, women who were ejected uh, from caucus over a highly publicized matter of principle. Um, so, yeah, you add that on top of uh, the normal um, uh, tendency to vote independence. And, uh, yeah, the, I mean, I, I think as it is, Jody Wilson-Raybould is probably already going to get something named after her. Um, so I think it's fair to say that her political career is not over, depending on what she chooses to do. And we're talking about this now because of what's happened, uh, because of the ejections from caucus. I suppose one of the questions for me, though, is what happens in a post-Trudeau world in that the election's coming up, there's a chance he loses. Even if he doesn't lose this one, he's not going to be the prime minister forever. Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, I think, still uh, is holds the, the connects with the Liberal Party, connects with the values. There's a reason why she ran uh, and wanted to run again as a liberal. Uh, so I, I suppose the question for me is what what role does she play in a po- in a post Trudeau uh, political landscape? Oh, I don't know because uh, the liberals aren't really acting like normal people right now. Uh, so we can stand uh, here on the outside and say, oh, she's really popular and she's a principled person. It seems like she would be a good leadership contender, or she should have a future history in the Liberal Party, but. Uh, yeah, uh, the liberals also tried to eject her and say that she's some insane, arrogant, uh, you know, careerist trying to rip down the Trudeau brands, which, um, I mean, that, that message resonates with insane, frothmouth liberal partisans, uh, but I don't think it's really resonating with the rest of the country. So, yeah, we could talk about you know, logically, um, what her future could be in the Liberal Party. But, uh, you know, maybe they could just shoot themselves in the foot anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does what stands out for you and how this has unfolded? Because for me, it's just, it's been how Justin Trudeau has handled this, how the Liberals have handed, handled this. I, just when you think they couldn't do anything more damaging, they turn around and do it. Uh, yeah, in, you know, to point to the Tories, when they had to uh, you know, throw, throw mud at a, a dissident caucus member, they were much better at it, possibly because their caucus members were a bit more roguish. Like, remember Helena Gerges, uh, she was, she was uh, you know, denouncing the Conservatives, and then, you know, magically that tape emerged of her, like, blockading a car wash and stuff. Um, so, yeah, this has been pretty embarrassing for the Liberals because you have – um, someone basically taking a principled stand uh, at the expense of their career. We never see politicians do that in Canada. Can you remember the last time someone said, oh, I'm actually going to prioritize you know, principle and values over my p- potential political future? So we love these two women for doing that. And then at the same time, you have all these attempts by the Liberal Party to say, like, oh, actually, you know, she wasn't that good an attorney general, and she was difficult to work with. And it, they're kind of every attempt they make to sort of you know, smear these two women uh, just kind of backfires more and more and more. So this is sort of weird. Yeah, if you could go back in time two months ago, I think it was Jane Philpott saying, if you just apologize and own this and we can move past this, I think she's absolutely correct. This could have been over. This could have been out of the news cycle. I mean, there's shrines that us newspaper reporters go to, and we pray that they keep going to screw up. 
so we can keep this in the headlines. And, yeah, kicking them out of caucus was uh, definitely something we were praying for. Uh, yeah, indeed. All right. Well, Tristan, I look forward to, to your future uh, writing on this. Uh, I think it's going to uh, that the that uh, going to the shrine is paying off because there is uh, more to come, I'm sure. Uh, but thanks so much for your time this morning. Great to chat with you again. Thank you. We talk a lot about real estate on this program, well, on all the programs on CKNW. We often talk about rental housing and the lack of rental housing in many communities. We know if we look back at the history, particularly the history of Vancouver, there has not been a significant amount of purpose-built rental housing in the city since the 1970s. And a new report that has been put out by Landlord BC takes a look at that and takes a look at why there has been this drop-off of rental housing and how we could perhaps change things to bring more of that type of housing online. The report is called Understanding BC's History of Rent Controls and Tax Policy to Improve Today's Rental Housing Crisis. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is David Hutniak, the CEO of Landlord BC. David, Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Uh, it talks a lot about rent control and uh, what that does to the market, what uh, the outcome is when we have certain rent controls in place. Uh, so maybe walk us through what this report looks at when it comes to rent control. Sure. Uh, I know our time is short here, but let me just set up the situation here for you. So as you, you said, we have a rental housing crisis here. It's obviously very challenging for renters. But uh, we are never going to solve this rental housing crisis as uh, long as we have uh, persistently low vacancy rates, Jill. So uh, if you are a rational investor, you are not going to build purpose-built rental in B.C. You're going to build condos, and we've seen that. And the situation, frankly, has been made worse by increasingly restrictive uh, legislation and regulatory uh, environment. Uh, It's tough to be a... A landlord today operating in BC, and it's even more difficult to, to build a new uh, purpose-built rental. And, and furthermore, and I think this is really important for folks to understand, all levels of government have made it abundantly clear that they are not prepared to use taxpayer dollars to incent or support the building of market purpose-built rental, which, you know, on the one hand, we understand, but the bottom line is we're perpetually stuck here. The, these persistently low vacancy rates continue. And now if you listen to some of the rhetoric out there from some folks, including from some uh, City of Vancouver councillors, it's it's actually quite surreal. It's like, you know, they're expecting some angel dust to fall from the sky and miraculously we're going to have all this rental housing, which is obviously beyond naive and frankly irresponsible. And so, you know, it's time for us to look for serious solutions, and that's what we're doing. And the critical element in all of this is that, you know, we're – we, like I said, we get it. They're not going to give, uh, you know, ta- use taxpayer dollars to subsidize the building of market rental. We're not asking for that. But what we are saying is that if we look at, uh, you know, the the history of British Columbia uh, during the 50s, 60s, and up to the mid 70s, we were building uh, secure, uh, purpose-built rental housing to meet the needs of current renters, to meet the needs of a, a steady flow of immigrants. And that was a time when we had no price or rent controls. And and the other reason we did this study was because, you know, what's really sort of uh, caused the conversation to go sideways uh, is that, in, you know, we've always heard uh, various levels of government, different stakeholders say, well, if we only had the MERB program that was around here in the mid-80s, 
that's when we got a lot of rental housing built. And, and what we've shown in this study, because we've known this all, all along, is that the more program was not this huge, quote-unquote, success that everybody alludes to. The, the, the tax advantages had a nominal effect. The, the reality is that the purpose-built rental that was built, those, the buildings that were built were, in fact, strata buildings. And that is why they were built. That was the risk removal element of all of this. So, so it's just, you know, another, they were just condos in disguise. So this, this is the whole, whole conversation that needs to, needs to happen here. The only way we're going to see purpose-built rental, secure long-term purpose-built rental built in this city, in this province, frankly, is if we get to a legislative environment that basically removes the risk for developers and lenders to come to British Columbia and build rental housing. Uh, one of the, the the ideas in the report then as well is to lift the idea of rent control for new buildings, to keep it in right. place for, for existing rental stock, but to not have it for new buildings. What do you think that would do to supply? It would it would cause a, a, a literal boom. And, and in fact, I can say that with extreme confidence because we have actually entered a really interesting period here right now. Uh, you are acutely aware of the fact that we've seen a real slowdown in the for purchase market. I mean, you know, there's certainly there's there's a, a, a you know price. There's been some softening in prices, what have you. But the, the harsh reality is, uh, developers who have uh, condo projects on the table, if if we had a conducive environment to building uh, purpose-built rental here. They are in the build, business of building multi-unit residential housing. I, I can say this with confidence because I talked to them that if they had the necessary environment here to build market-purpose-built rental, they would convert those condo projects to, to secure purpose-built rental. And so, so we actually have a unique opportunity here that hasn't existed for, for decades and and we need to take advantage of it, but it's not going to happen unless we create the the right environment to do it. And that that twenty year uh, exemption basically, I mean, those are the super high cost years. That's one of the financing, et cetera, for these new projects is that the costs are, are are extremely high. And and the other key point here, Jill, is that again, I mentioned the MERB program that those purpose built rental buildings were in fact stratified. What we're talking here is that these these are true purpose-built rental buildings, that, that they would be uh, purpose-built rental into perpetuity for the life of the building so that security of tenure for the, the new uh, residents that move into these uh, new buildings, they can be assured that the building they're living in is going to be rental for, for the life of that building. Is there a concern, though, people will hear that and say, but wouldn't that lead to in the new rental building, that stock, that the rents would be could go so out of control, people wouldn't be able to afford them? That's that's just not going to happen. I mean, at the end of the day, we have to build homes that are that are driven to local incomes. We are not building homes for wealthy offshore investors. So so that that uh, mitigates that issue right there. The, The harsh reality is that we cannot, uh, because of land costs, construction costs, what have you, without, you know, deep uh, incentives, uh, it is extremely challenging for us to build homes for household incomes below $80,000. That's, as you know, Metro did a study, I think it was 78000 So that we, we, we concur with that, that study. 
But the fact of the matter is, there's a huge cohort of renters out there. I mean, in fact, the city of Vancouver just put, pushed this out. Uh, uh, 30, just under 30% of renters, current renters in the city of Vancouver, the households have an income of 80, uh, in excess of $80,000 a year. 7% of current renters have a household income of $150,000 a year. So, so a third... A third of renters in the current market, if you take 30% of their income at $2,000 a month rent, we can we can build to that price point. Well, that sounds expensive, but this is this is the cost or the cost here. But the thing is, we're not building rental for anybody. So there's this huge cohort that's being neglected because uh, all levels of government, frankly, are arguing about how do we build affordable. In the meantime, we're building nothing. And we've got forty to 50,000 people moving into Metro every year. Most of them are going to be renters, particularly in the you know, first three, five, six years. We've got 5,000 Amazon people moving to downtown Vancouver here in the next year and a half or so. They're going to be renters. I mean, it, it's just, it's really, uh, you know, it's, like I said, it's, it's, it's surreal that we're having these, these conversations, that we're not really doing anything serious to solve this dilemma. You just keep perpetuating this, this, these low vacancy rates. And much of it, I think, is there's a philosophical orientation here. And, and again, from our perspective here, we are extremely sensitive to the to the to the to the challenges renters are facing here. Uh, at the end of the day, let's not forget those are the folks that we provide homes for. They're our customers. We want to see a a healthy, balanced uh, rental housing market. Uh, this this is not good. This is going to help. I mean, we need to get supply, so we're we're focusing on new builds today. There's uh, issues beyond that, but we we what we've decided to do here is undertake this study and really, you know, make the public aware and and frankly, all levels of government that, you know, let's start here at least. Let's create the environment that's conducive to developers and pension funds and lenders building uh, secure long-term rental housing in British Columbia. I mean, we, we just cannot, we cannot continue down the path that we're, we are on today. All right, uh, David, we'll have to leave it there. It is a very interesting report, uh, and uh, it's on the website if people want to check it out. But yeah. thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I, I really appreciate your, your calling, uh, introducing this, this issue here. And thanks again, Jill. Take care. And you've likely heard the name Logan Boulay quite often. He was in his third season as a defenseman with the Broncos when he died in that crash that killed 16 players and staff injured 13 others. Just weeks before that crash, Logan Boulay told his parents that he wanted to be an organ donor. His gift helped save six lives and inspired about 100,000 Canadians to register their intent to also become organ donors. And 90% of Canadians at this point say they support organ donation. The numbers of people registered, though, don't really reflect that. Those are sitting at about 23%. Uh, We'll be hearing more about this story uh, later on in that special programming. Uh, But right now, we uh, are going to bring in Leanne Appleton, the Executive Director of BC Transplant. Leanne, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, This certainly uh, is a story that uh, so many people were touched by and it just uh, has inspired people. Uh, I mean, it is so incredibly sad, but 
to perhaps one way to get a bit of positivity or something uh, that brightens the day uh, for people. Uh, Tomorrow is going to be Green Shirt Day for organ donor awareness and registration. And what does that mean for you as as the director, executive director of BC Transplant? How important is it to, to have something like that? Well, it's, it's so important, again, to raise more public awareness across Canada and here in BC. And we're doing our best to uh, reach out to uh, so many schools and workplaces, our health authority partners, to really um, honour Logan Boulay's legacy. Um, of course, our heartfelt uh, thoughts are with Humboldt community, also the Humboldt Broncos, and especially uh, the Boulay family. Uh, They've been so strong and so inspiring. And I guess what I'd like to add is out of this tragedy, as you just commented, is there is hope. Um, And this ripple effect of Canadians embracing um, the ability to register as a potential organ donor. And so it's so important for us uh, to to show our support tomorrow. And also on Monday, we've extended it to Monday uh, to also include uh, our schools and other community groups. Oh, that's that's good to know for sure. Uh, why do you think there is such a difference in the numbers when it comes to Canadians that say, yes, they're in full support of organ donation, but then uh, such a smaller number when it comes to people registered? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And, um, you know, I think it could be many different variables or um, people might think that they're too old to register and we don't have an age restriction. People might think because they have a medical condition, Maybe they can't register. Um, And so, you know, these are some of the myths that maybe we can um, make sure to people that really it's about having that conversation with your family, what your wishes are, and registering. That's the the two most important steps. And we really don't have um, any barriers for people to come forward if that is their wish. Are, are people able to make that decision? And maybe I'm wondering if perhaps that's part of it that people think, well, if I'm if I'm injured, if I if I'm injured and mm-hmm. I pass away, my family will be able to make that decision for me, or the doctors then will make the decision. But is that even possible if somebody's not registered? Yeah. So we have a very um, robust system in place to support this end of what I would call quality end of life care, and so. Um, when we uh, approach families, it's, it's much easier for our BC transplant uh, staff and coordinators who are specifically trained to talk to families who have actually had this conversation with their loved one in advance. And we can show them um, that their loved one is registered. Um, if, if the families are faced in a very tragic moment that they don't know what the wishes are of their family, we walk them through um, the process, and it really is up to them to decide to, to think about the value system of their loved one and would this be something that they would have wanted. Uh, because there's been a lot of talk this week as well of Nova of um, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick talking about the idea of, of presumed consent for organ and tissue donation and going down that road. Is that something that you would like to see BC do? Well, you know, Dr. Sean Keenan was on yesterday 
And uh, yes, you know, the, the announcement of Nova Scotia, it, it certainly came out uh, earlier this week in terms of um, their decision to move forward towards presumed consent. And this is early days and we, are, we want to learn from them. They're, they're, I guess, about a year away from implementing. And so, you know, we are looking forward to learning from them. But right now we're carrying on with our current robust systems and infrastructure and our focus is really around uh, the pieces that we know are making a difference here in BC, which is we have um, our supportive uh, BC transplant coordinators embedded in each of the hospitals and the intensive care units. We have our physician champions who are ICU physicians who are specially trained and know when to make these referrals. We, we provide a lot of education and training for all the healthcare professionals. And, um, and we know that that's making a difference. It certainly made a difference over the last two to three years, and we had a record-breaking year, yes, uh, actually last year in 2018, with 502 transplants here in BC. So we know that it is having an impact. And also, uh, we are getting uh, a larger amount of referrals coming from all of the hospitals, and we have a mandatory uh, referral system for anybody that is imminently going to die and, um, you know, not able to survive. So those are the system pieces that we have in place and we'll be carrying on with those and continue to improve on those areas. And at the same time, we look forward to hearing from Nova Scotia on their experience. Uh, definitely watching uh, what happens uh, in that province uh, moving forward there. Uh, and one other thing, we, we talk about this and, and difficult conversations, I suppose, to have. Nobody wants to think about that they might be in a crash or they might be in a position where they become an organ donor. Uh, but is there also awareness being raised about living donors and about work that's being done in that field? Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that because last year we had 100 living donors um, and who gave the gift of life with kidneys here in the province. And certainly uh, we are also leaders, uh, one of the leading provinces in Canada on li- living donation and considerable amount of work in that area uh, with our transplant centre colleagues and our kidney care clinics um, and really raising um, the awareness on that, how we can help uh, patients who are waiting the gift of life, how they can go about um, looking for uh, a donors. All right. Well, it uh, certainly is a topic uh, that uh, needs more discussion, and uh, thankfully those uh, conversations are are being had. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Leanne Appleton, Executive Director of BC Transplant. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much.